our scripture lesson for this day from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. For the past several weeks, we've been focusing on the Apostles' Creed for about six weeks now, I believe. And today we will finish that series and then we'll go in some other directions over the weeks to come. But we've looked at it phrase by phrase, thinking about what we believe as Christian people and how those beliefs impact the way we live our lives and the way we share our faith with others and the way we make it through day after day after day. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins we talked about last week and today. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. My hope is that from this time forward, as we repeat the creed, as we recite it in our homes and in our places of worship, that we'll have some new insights, that we've given it some more thought, that we might have a more profound realization about the way we live our lives in the world and why the beliefs that we have make a difference in the way we get along with other folks, the way we live our lives at home and elsewhere. May our beliefs continue to be strengthened across the years and the decades as we affirm our faith together. And may we find help to repel those forces that would seek to erode our spiritual foundations. And those forces are real. And they are so active. One of our spiritual ancestors in the Old Testament, Mr. Job, Job once asked a question that's my question, and I'm willing to bet it's your question or has been somewhere along the way. Job asked the question, If a mortal die, shall that mortal live again? If we look to the creed for an answer, 
all we can say is yes. I do believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In the basement of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, and I've been there once, it's been a while, but I've read about this, so let me share this with you. In the basement of the Field Museum is an open grave, and if one wants to, he or she can lean over the rail and look down over the wall that encloses it and look at the figure of the man below. There's a lot of death in that basement, one writer said. There is a replica of the funeral boat that the Egyptians used when they would take the embalmed or the prepared bodies to cross the river to transfer them to their resting places. And there are the mummies in the museum there too. And I don't remember those specifically, but if you've been to the Carlos Museum at Emory, you've seen the mummies there. What a fascinating history that is of the way we we cared for the human body across across the ages. But the open grave is one of the primary exhibits in this particular museum. And adults and children look at it, and they look at that pathetic figure that lies below, curled up in a fetal position. Most of the bones of the skeleton are intact and their reddish-brown color is a contrast with the gray sand that is beneath them. Perhaps the most touching element of this old grave is the feeble attempt to litter it with some kind of signs of hope. The fact that the bones were forced into a shape that mimics the shape of a human being, a fetal position, an unborn human, announces that this person perhaps is being reborn to some kind of life to come, or a hope for that, or a vague hope for that, that death is the gateway to new life, perhaps, if folk in that day really believed that. The dead person became a child waiting to be reborn, and circling those grotesque remains are all these um, clay pots, and they lie half buried in the sand, and they would contain food and makeup and other things that they felt like the dead might need in, in the world to come. Cosmetics, food, maybe if they lived again. But whatever the hopes of those who are laid to rest, they have obviously not been realized. For those who gaze down at this grave find only the stark and bitter evidence that for whoever this is and the grave, death has come and claimed the victory. And the flesh has turned to dust and has joined the earth in which it still rests. And the contents of the clay pots have long since evaporated and disappeared. Today, those who wander wide-eyed through the Field Museum often lean upon that rail, that public place, that circle, and they stare down at that red skull beneath them and all the hope that's been destroyed by the passing years. Dead is dead, and if you ever doubt that, some folks say, just look down into this ancient grave, and the spectacle there will prove it to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. He's dead. Now these are the reflections of a guy named Joel Niederhood, and he summarizes things by writing the view of death from the rim of the grave in the film museum, and the view of death from the Bible's point of view could hardly be more different from each other. Now, what is the biblical view of eternal life? 
the biblical view of that. In the Old Testament, there's not a lot of hope there, in all honesty. Not a lot of hope. There's some, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But according to the general Old Testament belief, all persons who died, without exception, went to a place called Sheol. And Sheol is often wrongly translated hell. It was a gray-like area, a vague area, a shadowy area beneath the earth somewhere where where folks would go once they died. And there was a shadowy existence. And there was no strength and there was no light and there was no hope. And there was no way to distinguish one individual from another in this place of Sheol. And the Old Testament is full of this bleak, grim pessimism regarding what happens after the time of death. There's an expression in the Old Testament that I I like. It's so-and-so died and was gathered to their ancestors. And I thought, well, maybe there's some hope there. But that was really an expression for the burial customs in the Old Testament where the bones were, the body was placed in the cave. And then later, after the decomposition, and folks didn't know about that. They thought that Mo, the god of death, came and ate the flesh. And then the bones were all scraped down into a large receptacle, gathered to their ancestors. Some people call this receptacle for the bones the bosom of Abraham. Psalm 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who can give you praise, O God? And then Psalm 30, and verse 9. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? And then Psalm 88, verses 10 through 12. Do thou work wonders for the dead? Do the shadows, do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in ways or in thy faithfulness in Abaddon? Are thy wonders known in the darkness for thy saving help in the land of forgetfulness? It's a bleak picture, isn't it? Psalm 115 and verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. Isaiah 38, 18. For Sheol cannot thank thee, death cannot praise thee. Those who go down to the pit cannot praise thee for thy faithfulness. And then Psalm 39 and verse 13. Look away from me, that I may know gladness before I depart and be no more. Ecclesiastes 9. But the one who is joined with all the living has hope. And then an expression I'd forgotten about in the Bible. It's a curious expression. It's made me stop and think. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. There's something to think about. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward, but the memory of them is lost. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Give it your best shot while you can, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom. And Sheol, where you're going. And then there's a guy named J.C. or J.E. McFadden. He's an Old Testament scholar. And he's talking about this lack of belief in the eternal life, immortality in the Old Testament. And he said, there's something important here due to the power of these people apprehended God in this world. In other words, he goes on to say, there are a few more wonderful things in the long story of religion than this idea that people would do their duties. 
And they would bear their burdens. And they would care for one another. And they would live in a full kind of way because of who they thought God was and what God expected of them. But they did all of this with no hope of any eternal reward. I wonder how many Christian folk would drop out of the ranks and would say the living out of this faith is not worth it were it not for the promise of eternal life. Now, it's true. There are some places in the Old Testament where hope shines forth, where it comes through for Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my soul rejoices, my body also dwells secure. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your godly ones see the pit. Now we're going in a different direction. I like this better. You do show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And of course, we're all familiar with the fourth verse of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The notion of life everlasting becomes very evident as we move into the the pages of the New Testament. The 11th chapter of John's Gospel, remember Jesus is standing with Martha, and they are in front of the tomb of her brother Lazarus, who has recently died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he'll rise again. I know that he'll live at the resurrection on the last day. And then that amazing statement of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the words from the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. And we've all heard these words so many times at a funeral service, memorial service, a celebration of life service. Heard these words over and over again, still powerful. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, or the King James Version says many mansions. A more accurate translation is probably many dwelling places. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And then finally our scripture lesson for today, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is speaking very straightforwardly about the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, Christ's resurrection and ours. For if the dead have not been raised, he said, then Christ has not been raised. And a little later he says, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all persons most to be pitied. And I think back to what we said in the Old Testament a moment ago. Folks who lived godly lives and good lives, even if they had no hope for the the life to come. I wonder if Paul ever had conversations with those thoughts, ever wrestled with what he's saying here. But the second portion of the lesson begins with verse 35. 
and is our scriptural basis for saying, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's a doctrine that many folks have debated about. Some folks have ridiculed it. Others have just said, how can this be? How can those who have died rise with their identical bodies? A guy named Celsus asked, and he asked it very sarcastically, really it is the hope of worms. For what soul of a mortal would any longer wish for a body that had rotted? Pretty harsh thoughts. But Paul never said that we would rise again with this same body with which we died. He insisted we would have a spiritual body. And what he really meant, I think, is that our personality, our soul, our spirit, who we really are, would survive and would be knowable. What Paul is contending for is that after death, the individual remains. The personality, the life of the individual He will still be himself. She will still survive as a person. That's what Paul means by the resurrection of the body, I think. And there's so much mystery involved with all of this, but I do believe this. Everything of the body and of the soul that is necessary to make one a whole person, a complete person, will survive. But at the same time, all things will be new. That amazing passage from the book of Revelation. And the one who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things. Our faith does have a word to speak in the face of sin and darkness and brokenness and death in this world. We do have hope. Lord Hamilton wrote that at 11.30 p.m., the night before Easter, the great church of St. Isaac's in Moscow was crowded with worshipers, packed to the door. And the only light in that huge cathedral, he said, came from the candles that sat on the coffin that supposedly contained the body of Jesus the Christ. And the priests were walking around the coffin and they were chanting the funeral service. And just before midnight, they open it and one of the priests will say, the coffin is empty. And then after a search, sort of a make-believe search, I guess, of the whole building, the Metropolitan declares exactly at midnight, Christ is risen. And immediately he said, almost like a flash of light or, or lightning, tens of thousands of candles were lit. And the whole place was aglow. And folks would begin to sing the Easter anthem. Nothing, wrote Lord Hamilton, is more dramatic more magnificent than this instantaneous glow of light, this interior gloom changing to blazing light from the dirge of the funeral mass and the singing of those sad, mournful songs to the jubilant Easter anthem. From the complete darkness of the tomb to the light of the resurrection. And I've tried to picture what it must have been like to be there. At a funeral that I heard about years ago for a United Methodist pastor, there was a pause in the service. And then the congregation, without any prompting, without any direction, all rose to their feet. And they began to recite the Apostles' Creed. And there, in the presence of a lifeless body and a coffin, in the presence of grief and sorrow and heartbreak, 
they were able to say with great conviction, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Do we so believe this day? Amen.